Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from a New Testament book, Philippians. Um, It's written by Paul to the um, early church in Philippi, and we'll be reading from chapter 4, if you'd like to read along, chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have reviewed, renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. And now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Becky. How many of you have heard Philippians 4.13 before? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, or I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me, or something of that nature. According to the YouVersion Bible app, it is one of the most popular searched verses in the scripture, uh, you know, worldwide. And, I mean, it's one of my favorite scriptures. I actually, when I graduated from high school, I had it on my graduation certificate or announcement because I thought that's what you did. Because I wanted people to know that Jesus was most important in my life and that anything that I did that was successful came from his strength. And I think that was true. I mean, it was mostly true. I mean, it was, it was true as much as an 18-year-old kid from northwestern Minnesota who never uh, worried about where he would sleep or what he would wear or where there would be food on the table could understand about Christ being strength. So then about nine years ago, a uh, couple of you, some of you know Mark Stoke and Colin Fleming. Before restoration was even restoration, uh, those two guys, myself and about a dozen other people, went down to Honduras to serve on a water project with a group called Agua Viva. Agua Viva brought living water to villages, remote villages in Honduras. They, brought, um, they provided the engineering and project management and then a group of Americans, mostly Minnesotans, to do the work. And then the village had to purchase a pure water source and provide a team of people that would dig alongside of us. So 
We started that week. I had my first work partner quit after the first day, and it wasn't because I was just an amazingly awesome digger. And on the second day, I had the second person quit. And on the third day, I had a third work partner who did stay with me, but that day I suffered a hernia injury that grew worse and worse and worse and worse until the end of the trip. So I learned a whole new truth about Christ being my strength. Maybe you've learned a truth about Christ being your strength. Not just a physical strength, but a hidden strength. I think Paul isn't talking about a physical strength when he's talking about this. I think he's talking about an inner strength, something you can't see, something that's hidden. The context that Becky read was Paul saying, I'm not saying all this to say that I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I imagine Paul saying, I know what it is to enjoy macaroni and cheese from Aldi, and I know what it's like to enjoy a tender, juicy filet mignon from Manny's Steakhouse. I know plenty, and I know need. Now, Paul could have asked for financial help. He could have asked for tangible support for his traveling ministry team that was going to these various towns, but in most cases, he didn't. And I think part of the reason he didn't was because he was asking for each of these towns to contribute to a relief fund that was in Jerusalem. So he was, the poor of Jerusalem were needing extra help, so he was asking for people to support that. But I think the other reason why is that Paul had learned to travel light. I don't imagine Paul having like a full wardrobe in a Louis Vuitton leather luggage set, but maybe. Later in 2 Timothy 4, he talks about a cloak, some parchments, and a scroll that mean a lot to him, that he left with some guy named Carpus. But other than that, he never really talks about his possessions. It's like he's gone to the school of a little bit, so he didn't need much to have enough. Have you ever been in a situation where you haven't needed much to have enough? I tell you, when I was watching these little kids from this village in Honduras, even though it was nine years ago, I can still picture it like yesterday. They were playing with sticks. Those were their toys, and they had enough. They had a ball that we brought, and they played some games. They had an old, old ball that barely stayed inflated, and it was enough. Paul goes on to say that he's learned this secret in verse 12 to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says, I can do all things or all this through Christ who gives me strength. I think Paul has lived long enough to lose some things that he realized he didn't need anyway. He's lived long enough to want some things that once he got them, he realized that he was actually better off without them and to ultimately discover that what he really needed, he already had. Think about that. See, if you believe that God has already given you 
everything you really need and the things he hasn't given you, you don't really need, then what could the world or circumstances or even Satan take away that would crush your confidence so much that you would live full of fear? If God has given you everything you need and what he hasn't given, you don't really need, then you are content. And even more than being content, I think you have confidence from that contentment. I think confidence actually can, or contentment can bring confidence. People who are naturally content with themselves have a natural confidence. And people who are content with who God has made them to be, I think have a supernatural confidence. Think about the people that you know that are, are humble and yet confident people. Do they not have a contentment? I think that's part of Paul's secret. He's saying in everything, all things, that's the secret I've learned. I can lay down on a sleep number bed and set it to 55 and it's perfect or I can have a thin blanket on a hard floor and I'm fine. I don't know if I could say that, but Paul can. In all things, Christ is my strength. It's a hidden strength. I don't think he had it in the beginning. I think he learned it. And I think he learned it from this supply that he could see. When these verses close with this I have received full payment and have more than enough. It's not just financial. He's saying that Epaphroditus did bring me these gifts, but it's less about the financial. He's connecting it to the spiritual. He says they're a fragrant offering. They're an acceptable sacrifice. They're pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, How is he so confident that God would meet their needs? I think it's because he learned what to see, what to look for. That there were these limitless supplies in Christ Jesus. Now, think about what holds you back in life. From the dreams you really want or you even believe that God wants for you. I heard that all fears can come down to these two, basically are written in these two things, the fear of not being enough and the fear of not having enough. And if Paul has a hidden strength and can see a limitless supply, then he's taken those two fears out into this snowy weather and he's let them freeze to death. They no longer bother him. That is something that I want. How do we get it? Well, Paul writes to a different church from the same prison, surrounded by the same enemies, the Ephesians. He's, he's in this prison. He's been in this prison. He's under house arrest. We've been looking at this week after week. And he says to the Ephesians in chapter 1, he says, I keep asking the, that God, the, our, that the Lord, sorry, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be 
opened will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that which he has called you. The glorious riches, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people and the incomparable great power for us who believe. So in just this one prayer, God is, Paul is asking that God would give these people a supernatural vision, eyes to see, spiritual eyes, that they would be filled with light so that they could see. He's asking for a limitless supply in the glorious riches and an incomparable power, this hidden strength. He's asking for strength and supply through this sight. And I think if Paul is praying for a group of people in Ephesus or any other place to receive that, that we can too. So I just say it like this. If you want the hidden strength that Paul had, then you need to see the limitless supply that he saw. If you want the hidden strength that Paul had, then you need to learn to see the limitless supply that Paul saw. If you're a note taker, it might be worth writing down. And maybe you're like, "Mm, I don't know, I'm not there yet. That's okay. So let's see if it's anywhere else in the Bible. Like, how about David before he's king? In 1 Samuel 16, David is the eighth son of a guy named Jesse. And one day, God sent Samuel the prophet to select the next king from Jesse's sons. And so the first seven come out. David's not even invited to the party. But the first ones come out, and God says, nope, not him. The second one comes out, nope, not him. The third one comes out, nope, not him. God doesn't look at people, Samuel, he says to Samuel, the way that humans look at each other. God looks beyond that, under the surface, and he looks at their heart. God has a supernatural vision. And at the end of this little episode in verse 11, Samuel says, are these all the sons you have? Okay, just think about it. Okay, first of all, think about how awful it would be to be the eighth and last son. Oh, he has to do it. Oh, your turn. Oh, it's your... So David, oh, who is it? Are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Think about how upset the first, the second... In the third. I mean, just the first. If you are an ancient Israelite and you're the firstborn, you have a double blessing. You're supposed to look after the shalom or the peace of your family. You're supposed to take care of your parents or your grandparents. You have ultimate responsibility, but you do get double blessing. Oh, it's not him. Well, they're still the youngest. Notice how he's not even named. Totally overlooked for the party. Which actually... I don't know, gives me some hope when I feel overlooked or unnamed. But Samuel says, send for him at once. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so Sam, or Jesse sent for him. Notice what is, his name's not included, but notice what is included. He's not tall, but he's dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Now, uh, some of your translations say he's ruddy, with a good form. Um, What it actually is saying is less about what he looks like and more about how he looks. It's not good looking, it's good at looking. The words mean good eyes, 
And Jesus talks about how important it is to have good eyes in Matthew 6, 22 and 23, when he says, the eyes are the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy or if your eyes are good, which would mean a lot to a Hebrew to hear the word good, then your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy or if your eyes are sick or if your eyes are evil, then your whole body is full of darkness. But if the light within you is full of darkness, then how great is that darkness? This is what it means to have good eyes, to be able to see below the situation, beyond the surface, the needs of others, the hurts of others, the hopes of others, and then respond appropriately. That's what Jesse, Samuel, I think God is getting at in David's story when they say he was dark and handsome with good eyes. And actually, they demonstrate that in the next chapter when a little while later, David is sent by his dad to see if it is well with his brothers. And he hears this challenge from this big enemy. 1 Samuel 17, 10 and 11, it says, this Goliath champion came out and he was nine feet tall and they go into exquisite detail and it'd be just beautiful to study for like a weekend. But he says, today I defy the armies of Israel. Send me a man who will fight me. And then if you know, they bring out one person and they bring out one person and then these you know, armies are camped around and they fight, the winner then is conqueror. And then you know, lots, of, lots less bloodshed. So that was a common thing. So every day for 40 days, Goliath has been coming out asking for a challenger. And when Saul, the king, and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. You know, in the Hebrew, that means they were freaking out, I think. In English, it means they were freaking out. Nobody was doing anything. The king wasn't willing to take on the enemy. David's brothers weren't willing to take on the enemy. In fact, no soldier was willing to take on that enemy. They could see, and they were freaking out. But a shepherd boy named David was. When he walks to see his brothers, some of the men, some of the soldiers ask, have you seen the giant? He comes out each day to defy Israel. What, what I want you to see here is that in this story, the king, the champion Goliath, the soldiers, they all see this as a battle between the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines. When David comes out, he says, verse 26, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David sees something that no one else sees. He has supernatural vision. His spiritual eyes were open. He could see this wasn't a battle between the armies of Israel and the armies of Philistines, but this was a battle between the Philistines and the armies of the living God. And so he didn't, not only did he not need some kind of a strength, he had a hidden strength, but he also didn't need someone else's supply. If you study the story, David didn't take a sword with him into battle. And when the king tried to put all of this armor on him, he said, I can't go in these, I'm not used to them. And he takes off that supply as well. He charged into battle with a sling because he was a shepherd, that's what he used, and a hidden strength from seeing a different supply and five stones. It's a pretty cool story. 
So a strength from a supply that you can see. Paul had it. David had it. One more, Elisha. Elisha had it. Elisha's a prophet. You can read his story in 2 Kings. He's mentored by the mighty prophet Elijah. And in, um, let me just, there we go. Uh, He performs more miracles than any other prophet in the Bible. In 2 Kings 3, he has three kings come to ask Elisha to ask for wisdom and pray for rain. And Elisha says, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet God will fill this valley with water. You, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. He could see a supply where everyone else saw drought. He could see beyond the rain and beyond the clouds to where the water would come from. He, in 2 Kings 4, he meets a widow who is going to lose her house and possibly her sons to indentured servitude or slavery because of some debts after her husband died. And she knows there's not enough. And she comes to the prophet and Elisha says, what do you have? I love this story. She says, "Uh, nothing at all, just a little bit of olive oil. You ever been in a situation where you just feel surrounded by debt or enemies and you want to respond, I have nothing at all, well, just a little bit? Because I want to know, well, what is it? Like, I want to know. Is it nothing at all or is it just a little bit? Because if it's just a little bit, God can do a lot with just a little bit. I mean, God took loaves and fishes and fed over 5,000 people with just a little bit of lunch. And even we prayed this morning that, you know, faith as small as a mustard seed is just a little bit. God can do big things with just a little bit. I don't think Elisha doesn't mind her response. I don't think God minds that response. It's pretty much just my issue. It's all right. I have nothing, God, but just a little bit. And so Elisha says, Go ask all your neighbors for empty jars. And then he says, don't ask for just a few. Ask for as many as you can and then lock your doors and pour your little bit of olive oil into each of those jars. And so her sons go collect as many jars as they can. They lock the door and she starts pouring that little bit of olive oil. And I don't know exactly how this happened. I believe it's a miracle. But she just kept pouring that little bit of olive oil into a jar and it filled up and then she brought another The son brought another jar, and that one filled up, and she just kept pouring. In fact, the oil didn't stop until every jar was full. Now, I want to believe that if she would have brought four jars, then the oil would have stopped after those four jars. And if they would have brought two jars, the oil would have stopped after two jars. Because I, I, I think that part of this is that, you know, God isn't limited by our capability. He's only limited by our capacity to see and receive what he is giving. And I get so stuck on my capability that I forget that God often is more concerned about my capacity. And maybe you're like, well, these are great stories about other people's strengths and other people's problems but I got problems and I need strength. I'm surrounded by enemies. 
Well, in 2 Kings 6, there is an enemy king that surrounds Well, he doesn't surround Israel. He actually surrounds Elisha because this king has been telling plans to his officers about, like, let's go attack. Aram is the country. It's by Syria. And so Aram comes down, and they want to attack Israel. And so he tells his officers they concoct a plan. They go march down, and they're going to take over this city, win this battle, and start to take over Israel. But God tells Elisha about those plans, so much so that the king's starting to go crazy, like, which one of you officers is betraying me because I'd like to betray you? But one of them says, I think it's Elisha, this man of God. It's like he's in your bedroom when you tell the secrets to someone, which is a little weird, but it's in there, so I thought I'd share it. This is very frustrating for the king because this happens over and over and over. So the king decides, how about we figure out where Elisha is and then we go kidnap him. Maybe he can start to tell us secrets about Israel and then we can take them down so much more easily. And so the spies find out that he's in this place called Dotham and they send a strong force with horses and chariots to surround this city and to capture Elisha. So they travel at night, they surround the city, and in the morning, Elisha, he's got a company of prophets, he's got one servant of God that is mentioned in the story, 2 Kings 6.15, if you zoned out for that part. 2 Kings 6.15 says, When the servant of the man of God woke up, And got up and went out early the next morning. An army with chariots and horses had surrounded the city. And he says, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Maybe you woke up on Thursday morning when it looked like this outside and you're like, oh no, my Lord, what should I do? Because I was stuck for three hours on Tuesday in this beautiful snow And I don't think I can be surrounded by snow and traffic again. People are crazy with just a little bit of snow on the ground. Uh, I know a few people who, that I care about, but a few people who suffer from seasonal affective disorder. And they get up in the morning and they feel surrounded by enemies. Actually, sometimes they feel it before they get up in the morning. I know some other people who just feel like they're surrounded by enemy voices in their heads. I think it's pretty common to feel surrounded by enemies. So if you're praying and, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? It's actually probably a good prayer. And Elisha, you know, gives just beautiful wisdom. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Which kind of reminds me of Jesus when they're rowing in the boat and it's scary and there's a storm and Jesus walks out on the water and he's like, don't be afraid, I'm with you. I kind of feel comforted that the disciples aren't like, oh, great, now everything's fine. Because when Jesus says that to me, just don't be afraid. I'm like, but you don't understand. That's not helping someone who's really afraid. Don't be afraid. That's what he says over and over, and over, and over, and over, and over in Scripture. Do not be afraid. Jesus says, I'm the Lord over the wind and the waves. I can see past your situation. I can see past your enemies. I am with you, and those who are not against me are for me. Those are all things that Jesus said at different times. And 
Maybe the servant's like counting the people in Dotham and then counting the people that are surrounding the city and going, I don't know what new math you use, Elisha, but there are not more of us than more of them. But Elisha prays in verse 17, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of chariots, and, or full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, I don't think the servant's eyes were closed. I just think he couldn't see what Elisha was seeing until God opened his eyes. Then he could see the heavenly horses and the fiery chariots. You know, there are two types of seeing. There's a physical seeing, there's the surface seeing, and then there's what's under the surface. Sometimes this happens with husbands and wives or best friends when they're talking to each other. Like, someone's talking, but they're saying way more than they're actually saying out loud with words. And you just got to have ears to hear and eyes to see. There's this openness that we need to have. Now, it also doesn't say when Elisha prays this, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and there he looked, and God sent the chariots and the horses. They were already there. They just needed to open their eyes. This servant just needed to open his eyes and see it. Is it possible when you and I have enemies surrounding us that God actually has help already there? that we just need to see? Maybe. Oh, gosh, you guys are a little skeptical. Okay, so here's the interesting part. So I put it on a map so we could go through it kind of fast. So there's Dotham. Dotham is a city that's built on a hill, but there's other hills that are surrounding it. So when the chariots and horses of the enemy came and surrounded the city, see, isn't that nice? Then the servant freaked out, and he's like, hey, Uh, what are we going to do? And Elisha prays, open his eyes so that they may see. And then, you know, the servant sees the heavenly horses and the fiery chariots surrounding, it says, all around Elisha. But it actually says that he looked to the hills, he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots. See, this is how I think we want it to be. When we feel surrounded by enemies, We want God to come around us and protect us. We want to be insulated from our problems. We don't want to have to face the pain. We want God to be in between our problems and us. But when that happens, sometimes we get confused about whose strength it is. See, if I'm on the inside and all I see is God's strength and then I see my enemies, then I think that that God's strength might be my strength and it might be about what I do. Even in Greek thought, when First Philippians 4.13 was written, Paul was actually fighting this thought of self-sufficiency. I can do all things in myself who strengthens me. And I think you and I sometimes have that thought as well. Like we want to be self-sufficient. Not God-sufficient. And if we're on the outside and we see the enemies and then we look through and see God's strength, then we see the person, then we can get confused about if it's God's strength or if it's us. But it says, the servant looked and saw the hills, plural, surrounding all around Elisha. Is it possible that this is how God had surrounded Elisha and his enemies. That God was actually on the outside of the problem, 
that Elisha needed to open his eyes and he could see it, but the servant, he had to have his eyes opened so he could look past the problems, past the situation, past the enemies, and then he could see that help was already there. I mean, that's pretty consistent with what Elijah's been doing, Elisha has been doing his whole ministry. Oh, there's a little bit of oil? I can see past that oil. It's going to fill all of this. Oh, there's rain? There's this drought? Yeah, don't worry. There's water here. Oh, there's, there's a king that's coming to attack me? I know where he is already. He's looking past the problem. He's looking through the situation, and he can see the help that is already there, this limitless supply of heavenly horses and fiery chariots. That's actually consistent with what uh, David did do. He saw past the living the situation of the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines, and he saw the armies of the living God. He had to look past his Goliath-sized problem, but then he knew that help was already there, which is actually consistent with what Paul learned, to be content in every situation. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, I've worked harder, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death over and over. Five times I've received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day on the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. And everything else, I face the daily pressure of the concern for all of these churches. But if I must boast, I will boast in my weakness. Now, who thinks that's a little insane after he says all that? Why would you want to boast about your weaknesses? I hate bragging about my weaknesses. I barely even like talking about my weaknesses. I think there are some people here, it's not just the strength, it's the supply. They're ashamed of the supply they have or the little bit they have because maybe they think it's not enough or maybe they think that God is not enough. And you don't want to boast about that. I think Paul boasts about his weakness because it's when he is weakest that God so clearly comes through as strong. He's convinced that through the hardships that God would supply. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, the next chapter. He says, When I asked God about the thorn in my side, about the weaknesses and the hardships that I faced, and asked him to take it away, God said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, Well then, if that's true, I will boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties, because when I am weak, then I am strong. When I look through my problems, then I see my supply. When it doesn't make sense, when everything seems to be falling apart, and yet I have peace, that's when people most clearly see Christ in me. The Christian whose life is going amazing 
It might be hard to see where God is at work, but the person whose house burned down and yet they still have peace even though they lost everything, then people are coming and beating down their door saying, what do you have? Because I want that. It's through the pain. It's through the problems. It's through the weakness. Is it possible that God wants to show you his strength, but he's going to do it through your weakness? Because when I have to work in my weakness, I'll be honest, I depend on God a lot more. Is it possible that God wants to show us his supply, but he's going to do it by doing it through the lens of our needs? So we have to ask. Is it possible that God wants to show us his faithfulness? He's just going to do it through our failures. Is it possible that God wants to show you his purpose, but he's going to do it through your pain? Because that's where visions and ministries are birthed. And, and it has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. We've seen it in three different times, but ultimately it's in the cross where the ultimate weakness is lifted up and it becomes the symbol of strength all around the world. This is who God is. His supply always meets our need. We've got to open our eyes. We've got to see it. And when we see it with spiritual eyes, not only can we be content, we can have a confidence that helps us to live fearless. Because the two greatest fears, fear of not having enough and the fear of not being enough, get answered in Christ's hidden strength and Christ's limitless supply. What are you afraid of? What are you holding back from? Where do you think he's not enough? And are you willing to bring it to him to have him meet that need by more than enough? Would you pray with me? God, I pray that your word would be the thing that, that just rests in our ears, in our minds, and in our hearts. That you would give us eyes to hear and see what your word is saying. That any of my words, God, any of my thoughts would fade away. What is true about you and in your word and from your spirit, God, that that would just come out. God, I pray specifically for those, God, that, that are feeling surrounded, that have a desperate prayer of, what shall we do? God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that the help is already here. That you have supplied, that we might need to look through our pain, we might need to look through that problem, that we might need to look through that situation and see it differently, but that you are already there. That your strength is is ultimately enough. That you actually want to show people your ultimate love and your ultimate strength through our weakness, our pain, and our hardship. God, would you, would you just grant us not only the confidence, 
but also the hardiness, God, the endurance, the persistence to allow us to go through that situation that it might bring you glory.